Matthew chapter 4, our text last week, this week, and next week will be on the temptation of Jesus. Last week, we got through the first four verses where after Jesus' baptism, the first thing that was done after Jesus was had His ordination, if you will, His baptism, was that He was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. Now this is a very interesting thing that we were talking about last week. Why is it that the first thing that Jesus was required to do was to be sent out into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan? And we had talked about how Jesus is being ordained as a high priest. That was His baptism. That was fulfilling the righteousness of the law. In the Old Testament, you had to have been a Levite, been called by God, been baptized, been 30 years old before you began your ministry. And in the case with Christ, even though Jesus was not a Levite, and in fact the Scripture tells us in the Psalms and in the book of Hebrews that He was of the order of Melchizedek, that Jesus Himself was 30 years old before He began His ministry, and He was baptized by another who was a priest, which was John the Baptist, in keeping with the law of God. We have to remember that everything that Jesus did was to fulfill the law of God. That was what was required by God to man, that which we could not do. And so Jesus, as our representative, came and fulfilled the law of God perfectly. And it is His righteousness, His perfection, that is credited to us through faith. But it was necessary that Jesus be sent out into the wilderness after His ordination as our high priest, because as our high priest, it is... It is needful that Jesus understand our infirmities. He needs to understand the weaknesses that we have. And so Jesus is going to be tempted by Satan in all three categories of the lust of the eye, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life to prove Himself as our faithful high priest. Now, the first temptation that we had talked about last week was one that in and of itself was not a sinful thing. That Satan had come to Jesus after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights. All he had at that time was water. He was preparing himself for this encounter. After 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus became hungry. And then that's when Satan came at one of his weakest points where he was hungry and tempted him to turn the stones into bread. He basically comes to Jesus. He says, since you're the Son of God... You know, I know our translations say, if you are the Son of God, but Satan knew exactly who Jesus was. He says to Jesus, since you are the Son of God, why are you going hungry? Why don't you make these stones of bread? Eat. Look at you. You need to eat a little bit. Now, turning uh, the rocks into bread was obviously something that Jesus could do. It wasn't necessarily a sinful thing that Jesus turned the stones into bread, but it was being made out to be that because it was required by God that Jesus fast during this time. That's what God had commanded. Jesus was to fast during this time. He was leaning on the Lord. He was being empowered by the Spirit and all that. And He had willingly submitted Himself to the will of the Father. And the will of the Father at this point was for Him to fast. And so Jesus, being hungry, is being tempted to use His own divine powers, which He had laid aside His privileges when He became man to submit to the will of the Father. Satan is trying to get Jesus to use His divine powers to satisfy His own hunger, to satisfy His own self, rather than going hungry. 
So even though it wasn't necessarily a sinful thing in and of itself, the fact that Satan was trying to get Jesus to disobey the Father, it was a sinful thing. So what does Jesus reply? Jesus replied, it is written, and we're going to see this in the next couple um, replies that Jesus gives. It is written, now remember this, in the Greek, this is in the perfect tense. When Jesus says, it is written, this one word, and it means that what was said then or what was commanded then is still applying today. That's what the perfect tense is in the Greek, and that's exactly what Jesus is saying. It is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. So Jesus' reply to Satan then is, it is not bread that's going to satisfy me. It's not bread that's going to keep me alive. What keeps me alive is the power of God. That's what sustains me. That's what cares for me and protects me. It's the power of God. And so Satan then is going to take him up on that in this next temptation. So if you would, we'll begin in verse 5. We'll read to verse 7. Stand with me as we give honor to God's Word. Beginning in verse 5. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God... Throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on, the, on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, On the other hand it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we humbly come into Your presence this morning. Father, we give you all the praise and the honor for who You are and what You've done for us. Father, we thank You for Your Word, revealing Yourself to us. Father, revealing those things that are good and pleasing in Your sight, that we could learn them and apply them to our lives, that we would be even more faithful to You. Most of all, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ and the sacrifice He made on our behalf. Father, we owe You all that we are and all that we have. Thank You for Your mercy. Thank You for Your grace. And it's in Christ's name we pray and all of God's children said. Amen. You may be seated. Now, as Jesus says to Satan that man doesn't live by bread alone. Bread alone isn't going to keep you alive. It's the power of God that keeps you alive. The very Word of God that we see in the early chapters of Genesis, the, the Word of God that brought creation into existence, the all-powerful powerfulness of God is what keeps us alive. It keeps us going. That's why Jesus will say in Luke 11 and Luke 12, don't worry about what you're going to wear, don't worry about what you're going to drink, don't worry about what you're going to eat. The Lord's going to supply your needs while you're here. He's going to keep you alive. He's going to keep you going until He's done with you. That's really you know, basically the, the gist of it. And so Satan takes Jesus up on this. Okay, you say that God is protecting you. You say that God cares for you, that God loves you, and He's going to keep you alive and so forth. So verse 5, the devil took him into the holy city, into Jerusalem, and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. The pinnacle was the royal portico on the southeast side of the temple. It overlooked the valley Kidron. So there was at least a 450-foot drop from that corner down to the brook Kidron. So Satan and Jesus are standing there, and Satan says, okay, if God really cares for you, and God's really protecting you, why don't you just cast yourself down? Cast yourself down. And he says, 
It is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Well, Satan's like, okay, prove it. Prove God's care for you. Prove that God is protecting you. Why don't you throw yourself off here? He's going to have His angels there to, to pick you up. You won't even strike your foot against a stone, and, and the people, they'll, they'll accept you then. Think of the crowds that are at the bottom that would see this thing happening. What is it that Satan's trying to do? Satan is trying to cause distrust in Christ for the Father, to distrust Him, distrust His care and His protection, and require of God further evidence of God being with Him. Now God has already said, in the baptism. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. He'd already affirmed Jesus at His baptism. God had no reason whatsoever to give further evidence of His care and love and protection for Christ. But yet Satan is trying to cause distrust, to, to cause disunity among the Godhead. A very serious... Satan is quoting from Psalm 91. Satan knows the Scriptures much better than we do. And it is through false doctrine mainly that Satan works. You know, the Scriptures tell us to beware of seducing spirits and doctrines of demons. And it is through aberrations of the Scripture, uh, excuse me, aberrant interpretations of the Scripture that Satan can cause us to stumble. We see cults today. They use parts of the Scriptures. They ignore the rest. And they're led into error. You see a lot of denominations today that embrace certain teachings of the Scriptures that Context does not justify, and they fall into error. Satan works in such a way, if he can get you off track by using Scripture and causing you to stumble in that way, that's what he's going to do. You know, we talk about spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is not going out and trying to cast out demons and doing all this sort of thing. Spiritual warfare is with the mind. He works through false doctrine and false teaching trying to get you to stumble. We see that often, and we'll talk about that in, in a moment. <clears throat> but Satan is quoting Psalm 91. And let's take a look at that so that we can put it in the right context. Satan is quoting Psalm 91, beginning of verse 11. The Scripture says, For He will give His angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways, they will bear you up in their hands that you do not strike your foot against a stone. And it goes on. So he is quoting from Psalm 91, a psalm that is speaking about God's protection and care. Indeed it does. But it is not speaking of God's protection and care for you going and doing your own thing, going on your own path. In the very first verse of Psalm 91, it says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. God's protection and God's care for you is you abiding in Him, walking in His ways. And for Jesus to put the Lord to the test in such a way that He's going to throw Himself off and expect the Lord to intervene, He is putting Him to the test and that is causing doubts. That's, a, that's just doubting God's power, God, doubting God's care and so forth. Satan is trying to get Christ to go His own way. And what does Jesus reply? Jesus said to him, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
He quotes Scripture again in order to combat this temptation. The Scripture is taken from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, and it is in reference to the time when Israel was complaining and murmuring back in Exodus chapter 17. They put the Lord to the test. In Exodus 17, in verse 1, this is after they come out of the land of Egypt. It says, Then all the congregation of the sons of Israel journeyed by stages from the wilderness of Sion, according to the command of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim, and there was no water for the people to drink. Therefore the people quarreled with, Mo- with Moses and said, Give us water that we may drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water, and they grumbled against Moses and said, Why now have you brought us up from Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, saying, What shall I do to this people? A little more, and they will stone me. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pass before the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand your staff with which you struck the Nile, and go. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water water will come out of it, that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He named the place Massa and Meribah because of the quarrel of the sons of Israel, because they tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? This is the same thing that's going on here. Satan is saying, Prove that the Lord's with you. Is He with you or is He not? Same thing that the children of Israel were doing. They came out of the land of Egypt. They quarreled with Moses. They had seen the things that God had done so far. They had seen God part the Red Sea and all of that. And yet they still said, is God among us or is He not? What are they doing? They're testing Him. Is He going to intervene? Is He not? It doesn't matter what we've seen so far. They were testing Him. Testing the Lord. Trying Him. That's something that we see often. Something that we are probably all guilty of. I know I am of testing the Lord and presuming upon the Lord that the Lord is going to intervene in something that I have put myself in. Because I had allowed myself to doubt what the Lord had said already. That's something that we must guard against. Because what the Scriptures tell us is is sufficient enough that we don't have to require more of the Lord to see if He's really among us. We don't have to require a sign or miraculous things. Lord, are you with me or not? I'm going to put myself in this dangerous situation over here, and I want you to intervene. And if you intervene, then I know you're with me. We see that a lot. Requiring signs and miracles. God doesn't have to require, He doesn't have to do any of that. God has already given you the assurance of your salvation through His Word and what is written in His Word. Not only in His Word, the promises that He gives, but you can look back at your life and you can see how the Lord orchestrated certain events in your life that have brought you to where you are. You have the witness of those within the Scripture themselves of how God worked in them and worked through them and accomplished His work and His his protection and His care and all that He provided for them. We have that witness. There's no need to ask for signs and miracles. None of that. But yet we see that today. Lord, if you're with me, give me a sign. Lord, if you really want me to do this over here, I need a sign from you. I need a miracle. What does Jesus say 
An evil and adulterous generation desires a sign. Do we not believe what the Scripture says? Does God is it required of God to give us further evidence of Him being with us? Those are the questions that we have to ask ourselves. Do we doubt what the Scripture says? And so we're going to go even further, demanding of God. You know, all that really falls into the sin of presumption. We presume upon the Lord. We put ourselves in a situation asking Him to show Himself, Himself to us and deliver us from it. Simon Magus, who was one during the time of Israel before the destruction of Jerusalem, who claimed to be the Messiah, who presumed upon the Lord, and at this particular spot where Satan had taken Jesus, he himself plunged off of the corner of the temple, expecting the Lord to intervene, and his results were not, not good. If we presume upon the Lord to get us out of something that we've purposely put ourselves in. We're going to have some bad results. It comes back to this. And this is this is what Jesus said. It is written. We go back to the scripture. What did God say already? God said he would never leave us, he'd never forsake us. He says we are united with Christ in his death and burial. He says that we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. He says that He has given us His Spirit, that we can cry out, Abba, Father, He's the Spirit of adoption. All of these things that demonstrate the closeness of God to His people, and yet we're going to step back and say, I need more. You know, one thing that's popular today, very interesting, is called fleece praying. Fleece praying. It comes from Judges chapter 6. And turn with me there. Judges chapter 6. This is with Gideon. Judges chapter 6, verse 36. We'll begin there. This is when the Lord had appeared to Gideon and had said to Gideon, I'm going to use you to deliver Israel. And here's what Gideon says to God in verse 36. Then Gideon said to God, If you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken, Behold, I will put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I will know that, that you will deliver Israel through me as you have spoken. And it was so, when he arose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece, he drained the dew from the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not let your anger burn against me, that I may speak once more. Please let me make a test once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry on the fleece, and let there be dew on the, all the ground. God did so that night, for it was dry only on the fleece, and the dew was all on the ground. Now they look at this, and they use this as an example of how to pray. They call it fleece praying. That you ask of God a sign to confirm something that you're trying to, to do, or you're wondering, or whatever the case may be. And they said, Gideon done it, so why can't we do it? So we demand of God a sign or a miraculous event or what have you. We need to understand something about this. God had already told Gideon 
already. I'm going to use you to do this. You're going to deliver Israel. I'm going to work through you to accomplish this. And what does Gideon do? He doubts what God had said. He says, if you're really going to do this, then how about make that fleece wet, dry on the ground? And then when it happens, what does he say? Let not your anger burn against your servant. He knows he's testing God. He knows it's displeasing to God, and yet he still further asks, now let the fleece be dry, let the, dry, let the ground be wet. This is not a model of prayer. This is not a model to follow in desiring of God more signs and miracles to confirm something for you. Do you trust His Word or not? Is it sufficient or is it not? That's basically the issue. Do you believe God is with you? Or do you require further evidence? We put ourselves in situations with bad outcomes because we're testing Him. We presume upon Him. We want to know with a sign. And so we fall into the sin of presumption. There are a variety of ways, by the way, that we can fall into the sin of presumption. God has a means of how He accomplishes something. You don't just jump with your feet firmly planted in midair. If God is leading you to do something, He leads us through His Spirit that works within us according to what He has already told us in His Word. What things do we know in the Scripture that God's will for God's will in our life? You know, we hear that a lot. What is God's will for my life? What is God's will for my life? What is it He's already said? What is it He's already said? That's what you do, and then God leads accordingly. What is it God's will? God's will for you to be saved. God's will for you to be justified. God's will for you to be sanctified. It's God's will that you abstain from fleshly desires, from sin. It's God's will that you suffer. We understand that as well, that we identify with Christ in our suffering and so forth. Philippians 1, 2 Corinthians 4. <clears throat> it's God's will that we come together. It's God's will that we know Him. It's God's will that we evangelize. We know these things, and so we do them. And then if God has something else specifically for our life, as we are doing these things that we know is pleasing to God, these things that we know that is the will of God according to what He has said, then God will lead accordingly and open the doors that He desires for us to go into. It's not, Lord, I want to do this, but I'm not going to work to accomplish that. I just want you to do it. That's not how it works. That's like saying, Lord, I'm not going to do anything to earn any money, but I am expecting you to feed me. What does the Scripture say? If you don't work, you don't eat. There's a means that this is accomplished. Lord, I want good health, but I'm not going to obey the rules of health. Lord, I want you to save my children. I want you to work in my children's life, but I'm not going to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Lord, I want you to do something with this ministry over here, but I'm not willing to work into that ministry to help get it going or get it whatever. I just want you to do it. It's not how it works. You're presuming upon God. We presume upon God too when we get in financial situations, don't we? Lord, I don't have the money to do this. I don't have the money to get this. But I'm just going to believe, Lord, that you're going to accomplish this. I don't have the money to pay for that. Lord, I know you're going to intervene. You want me to have it. I wish I could do that. 
You're presuming upon God. We see that a lot with the uh, Word of Faith teachers, don't we? You sow this much, God will give you this much. If you pray this kind of thing, God will give you this. It's presuming. We presume upon God when we enter into situations that we know are difficult for us to handle anyway as far as the temptation for sin. And we put ourselves there and we say, Lord, hide my eyes. Keep me, Lord, from, from falling into this sin. Or keep me, Lord, from seeing these things. And yet we're purposely putting ourselves in there. For instance, if you have someone that is, that is addicted you know, to alcohol or to drugs, they've been battling with it, they're trying to get over it and so forth, and then they're going to go right into a group of people that are doing that very thing and ask the Lord, please, Lord, protect me. Put a hedge around me, Lord, and don't let me fall into this even though I'm putting myself here. That's presuming. Presuming upon the grace of God. You know, we talk about, this isn't an issue of alcohol or whatever, but <clears throat> we talk about when it comes to like the, issue, the, the subject of alcohol. Now, is there any Scripture in here that would say it's a sin to drink alcohol? No, there's not. What does the Scripture tell us? Not to get drunk and so forth. And so what we do is that we have this line, right? We say this is the line that we just don't cross. But yet what we want to end up doing is keep getting closer and closer to the line. We're not going to cross it, but we want to get as close to it as we can. And that's with any sin. And then we're asking God to protect us and care for us and don't let us fall into that. And then when we do, who gets the blame? Oh, Lord, you had to let me do it. That's like with Adam, isn't it? You think back to the early chapters of Genesis. Adam and Eve, they took of the forbidden fruit. And then the Lord comes walking in the cool of the day. Where are you at? Who told you you were naked? And what does Adam do? The woman you gave me. The woman you gave me, gave me, and I ate. What did Adam do? He blamed God. This is your fault. You gave me her. This is what she did. But God gets the blame, doesn't He? And we put ourselves there. We're the ones that need to take responsibility. So there are a variety of ways that we presume upon the grace of God. A variety of ways that we put ourselves in situations and demand of God to deliver us. <clears throat> Again, having that happen, all that we're doing, all that we're doing is setting ourselves up for failure. You know you have a difficult problem with something, you don't go near it. If you know you're getting ready to get into a group of people and you're going to see things that you shouldn't, don't go. If you know that there's a ministry opportunity that you would like to see happen or whatever, then work to make it happen. Be prepared for things. And prepare beforehand. You know, one, one way that uh, just growing up, and I'm sure that you all have seen it too, the way that uh, we presume upon God sometimes, as we see it some, with, uh, with some preachers. I remember probably within the last 
six, seven years, I remember hearing one particular man who had gotten up in front of the congregation and he had this little card with him. And he said, well, I was sitting there in the pew and I jotted down a few things. He said, because I don't study. I don't study. I don't prepare for sermons. I don't do anything like that. I get up here and I just I say whatever the Lord puts on my heart to say. And that's okay. Sure. But again, that's presuming upon God that He's going to put those words in your mouth that He wants everybody to hear. That's presumption. There is study that needs to happen before you get to the pulpit. There's study that needs to happen before you get in the classroom in order to teach somebody else. You don't just get in there and say, well, guys, I, I think that uh, I think maybe this is what we're going to go over tonight. I hadn't really studied it, so let's just let's see where we end up. There needs to be preparation, even in those cases. The Lord brings things back to our remembrance that we have studied. He doesn't just put it there. There's preparation that needs to happen. Preparation that needs to happen in any and every event. Whether it's dealing with things, particular sins that you're trying to fend off or whatever, there's preparation that you're doing in order to be strengthened in that and keep away from it. There's preparation in, in doing ministry and in teaching and in anything else that you do in life. There's preparation that you do to get from here to there. There's a means. We don't presume. We don't presume that God's going to just deliver us. That God's going to make this happen without us being willing to either do the work or to keep ourselves from being in certain situations. I heard MacArthur talk about um, one's, uh, see, there's a young couple in, in the, one of their youth classes or whatever. And this young girl ended up pregnant. And she come to the youth minister and she said, I, I just don't know how this happened. You know, we prayed before every date and we prayed and so forth. He's like, well, what would you do after that? Apparently you let yourself be alone. There's ways that you keep yourself from being able to fall into sin. You don't just presume that you're going to have the strength to do it. What does the Scripture say? That he who stands, thinks he stands, beware, lest he fall. So Jesus replies with the Scripture. We trust in the Scripture. He's putting his trust in God alone who has already said, I am pleased with you. The one who sent him to earth to accomplish a certain purpose already had the means in place. He didn't doubt. He didn't question. He didn't distrust. He went back to the Scripture. What did He say? And that's what I'm going to have faith in. That's all the evidence that I need is what God has said already. He's not going to change His mind. He's not going to come up with something different than what He's already said. He's given us the instructions right here. But what it takes on our part is to get in here to study, to show ourselves approved and rightly handle the Scripture so we don't take it out of context, but we keep it as it is supposed to be understood, and then we apply those things. 
so that when Satan comes and he tempts us, we can automatically bring back to our remembrance what God has said and say, no, God said this. He said in His Word, whatever the situation may be. We have to trust what God has already said. Don't ask for signs. Don't ask for miracles. Don't ask for proof of God's love. This proof of God's love has already been demonstrated by Christ. God's love for you has already been demonstrated through the work of Christ and the fact that He chose to save you. God didn't have to. He would have been perfectly just in letting everybody split hell open. But in His grace and mercy, He decided, I'm going to save them. So His love, His care for you, His protection for you has already been demonstrated. And what He requires of us now is that if we really want to be Spirit-led, then you need to read what the Spirit inspired. And line your life up with that. Let us not presume upon God. Let us not test Him. Let us be faithful to adhering to the Scripture. Faith, having faith in what God has already said. But we will stop there. And then we will pick up at verse 8. And we will finish up verses 8 to 11 next Lord's Day. Let's stand if you will. Let's have a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we again come into Your presence, thanking You for Your Word, revealing Yourself to us through Your Word, that we could come to know You, the one true God and Jesus Christ whom You have sent, as Your Word says. Father, we pray the very same thing that Christ prayed for us, to sanctify us in Your truth, that Your Word is truth. Father, let us not fall into the trap of seeking signs. Father, You have said all that You need to say in Your Word. Father, we just need to have faith in what You've said and trust You. Have confidence that You are the sovereign God. Father, we pray that You would Forgive us where we have failed You. Forgive us, Lord, for testing You, for presuming upon Your grace. Father, we don't want to fall into sin. We don't want to ask You to further evidence Yourself to us. Father, we believe that You are indeed with us. Father, help us and give us wisdom that we don't fall into situations of sin. Help us, Lord, to apply Your Word to our life that we would be better faithful, better faithful servants for You. Father, we only desire to please You. Father, we give You all the praise and the honor and the glory for who You are and for saving us, Father, and bestowing Your grace upon us when You didn't have to. None of us deserve it, but we are eternally grateful that You chose to give it. Father, we ask You, Pray all these things in Jesus' name. And all of God's children said, Amen.